This is a diet of Brussels. This month I'm going to talk about a couple of things. One is something I've been writing about recently, which is the question of how do the EU and the UK interact with each other now that we've kind of got into something that's perhaps a bit more like normal uh, relations uh, out of the uh, kind of uh, wake of the Windsor framework. But first of all, of all, I want to come back to the question that I see repeatedly on social media, which is polling that shows that there's a clear majority of people who think that uh, Brexit was a bad idea and that uh, rejoining the EU would be a good thing and asking, well, why aren't there any parties that uh, have that policy? Why is it that we've got a opposition party, Labour, that is uh, claiming to be sort of uh, all in favour of uh, internationalism and you know, being back out in the world, and then also says that it doesn't want to do anything uh, to change the basic lines of the relationship between the UK and the EU, including uh, even rejoining the single market or the customs union. This is an important question because it is a clear point of frustration for many, but also I think it speaks to the way in which politics works in many cases. Perhaps the starting point for this is to look at uh, the question of how important is Brexit in the public's imagination and uh, what they see. Um, Ipsos Mori do a very good uh, monthly report where they ask people, you know, what do you see as the most important or other important issues facing Britain today? And they do a nice little uh, report at ipsos.com that you can go and find. Um, you'll not be surprised to hear that the, the top rating things right now are inflation, with uh, 40%, the economy with 33%, uh, and uh, health with uh, 29%. Now those issues are what we might term bread and butter issues. They are things that are of persistent interest to uh, people. They have clear material impacts on their lives. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised that that's the case. Now, if we look at the question of uh, Brexit slash EU slash Europe slash, interestingly, common market, which tells you how long this has been around, that languishes down at somewhere around about 9 or 10%. And that's been pretty much where it's been for the last couple of years, that once we got through uh, the withdrawal agreements, it's really uh, where it's languished that you know about one in ten people think that this is an important issue now that's not nothing but equally it's not a priority for most of the public and indeed it very rarely has it's only been in that period uh, around the time of the referendum 
and around uh, the subsequent uh, debates that we have discussed for so many years. Uh, I believe we're actually coming up to our eighth birthday, which is a very surprising development for me. That it's really only in this period that uh, the European issue has been one of sufficient concern to really shape the political landscape. I think this is the starting point for any understanding of why political parties are not prepared to put the question of membership front and centre in what they do. Think, for example, about the last eight years, the time in which we've been running this podcast, uh, ever since David Cameron unexpectedly won that general election back in 2015. A seemingly simple issue, let's leave, becomes something which is all-consuming. All now, let's say you could get the UK back in. You'd probably need to do a referendum. You'd need to get a whole load of negotiations uh, with other member states going. You'd have to take on a whole load of obligations. And even if you didn't have the kind of the tussles in Parliament and in society that we saw uh, in the wake of 2016, it still would clearly be a hugely disruptive and consuming process for the UK to become a member state once more. And that means that all those other things that parties want to do inflation, economy, health, all those issues that we're talking about as being seen as the most important ones, lose time and space in government bandwidth. So the opportunity cost of taking on uh, Brexit and relations with the EU as a, the priority, which is what it would become, is such that parties don't think that that's a positive calculation for them. And here, you know, we think about Labour. Labour are far ahead in the polls, have been for some time, and they've done that in part, uh, well, they've done that without talking about Brexit as an issue. Their policy has been studiously, we're not going to touch it, we're not changing the basic parameters, yes, we want better relations, we will have better relations, we will make Brexit work, to use Starmer's phrase. But... In practice, that's not really any different from conservative policy or Rishi Sunak's policy, which is, you know, this is the deal. We're going to make the deal work as well as we can. We will protect British interests, but also we will try and do more wherever it's possible and useful. Now, that absence of talking about Brexit issues is, for Labour apparently not a problem because there is more than enough that they think that they can do that will actually address people's concerns about economic performance, economic management, the state of public services of all kinds to uh, really address those kind of issues. Moreover, a party particularly like Labour that has got its own uh, kind of divisions are uh, Changing policy in any macro way is likely to cause internal division. It's certain to cause 
are the Conservative Party in whatever state it's in and its supporters in the press to say, well, this is a slippery slope back to membership and, you know, it's the thin end of the wedge. And they will do that anyway, as and when Labour comes into power and does things that the Conservative government probably would have done anyway. So as a stick to be beaten with, uh, the EU looks quite frightening for the Labour Party. Even for someone like the Liberal Democrats, uh, who are the most naturally inclined to having a policy of rejoining, this is something that they haven't really foregrounded because, again, it's not where they want to put themselves. Part of their strength in uh, performances in elections, whether that's the uh, local elections we're about to have, or in national polling, comes from being an alternative to the big two. That they are the safe alternative to park your protest, to get uh, more progressive kind of politics. But in terms of big plans, that kind of period that they had after 2016... Uh, of trying to position themselves as sort of the, the flag bearers of uh, rejoin seems to have passed. Um, that the thrashing that they took in uh, 2019 uh, has really done them uh, no favours. And so that return to that kind of sort of 1980s Lib Dem kind of model of kind of being hyper local, very fixated on. Uh, specific issues, you know, material benefits to the local community, all of that is, I think, uh, more or less where the party is. Now, all of this is deeply frustrating for those not insignificant numbers of people who think that rejoining is a key priority. But the idea here is really to help you again think about why it is that parties don't do this thing that you think is so obvious. All of this really speaks then to a situation where the relationship between the UK and the EU is likely to remain pretty much as it has been for the foreseeable future. This brings us to this other point that I want to, to discuss and I've been writing about, which is, you know, what does that actually look like? The conclusion of the Winter Framework really takes us, well, it doesn't open a, a new door, basically what it does is it takes us to the situation that uh, we would have expected to have been in in the immediate aftermath of concluding the trade and cooperation agreements at the end of 2020. Namely, a relationship between two parties that looks um, pretty normal in terms of not having immediate points of tension that are actively compromising everything else but equally you know it's a, a degree of distance between the two and notwithstanding the very unusual nature of this relationship which has been one of divergence moving from uh, the UK being a member of the EU to something that is a, a lot more arm's length um, it would be a lot more like the the regular kinds of relations that we might expect the EU to have with a neighbouring party now, uh, 
what's brought this back is not so much the Windsor framework, but more the discussions about the Horizon program for research that the EU runs. At the time that Windsor was signed, uh, Ursula von der Leyen talked about you know immediately making progress to get the UK uh, back into the program, which had all been held up um, for seemingly technical reasons, but basically because the EU refused to uh, to do that whilst the protocol was up in the air. Since late February, when that was announced, we've had a number of meetings, we've had delegations going backwards and forwards, and now, here at the beginning of May, oh, we still don't have an agreement. Now, three months is, in the scheme of things, not a long time, but equally, it's not as if it's that complicated an issue. But what we see in terms of the briefings has been, first of all, a desire on both sides to get this sorted, um, but also uh, the UK arguing that it shouldn't have to pay the full amount uh, of contribution costs that it would have to be uh, liable for because it's not been member for the first two uh, years of the seven-year framework period that uh, this relates to. Now that seems to cause a little bit of consternation, but then the EU is like, well, okay, actually, fine, fair enough. But now we're in a situation where the UK government is saying that not only should it not pay the, the full five years that it would be a member, but that because it hasn't been a member for the last two years, there's been a sort of a, an attack on its ability to um, actually deliver the kinds of engagement that would normally be expected. And as a result, British-based researchers would be relatively uh, underperforming and therefore there'd be less money coming back to the UK and therefore the UK government should put less money in. Now, that's a bit of a push, and that currently seems to be a bit of a sticking point, but uh, it's not impossible to, to make that argument. Indeed, the British government has made that argument, and you can kind of see the logic. But it just shows that just because we have uh, got the Windsor framework in place and we've taken the heat out of much of the protocol issues, at least uh, between the London government and uh, the Commission, it doesn't mean that we have a resolution of everything else. So even in an area like Horizon, where we have a uh, clear mutual interest in uh, both uh, sides uh, resolving this, it doesn't mean that we've got uh, an automatic agreement coming through. And here, again, I think that we, we see the start of the kind of more fundamental logic that's at work. From the EU's perspective, the question now is about UK participation in EU programmes and activities. That It's the larger party, it's the one to which the UK should cleave when it comes to doing things. And as such, it can afford to be patient because it's already got its own policies and so it's a question about whether it's willing to let the UK join rather than about creating something new that requires both parties to actually do something uh, to create uh, something uh, from nothing. Now, that's a rather different logic from 
the time of membership where the uh, UK was a co-decider of policy that as events and policies and you know unrolled it was necessary to kind of find agreement amongst the contracting parties now within the EU the logic is very much one of trying to help everyone come along at the same speed you know for all the talk we've had over the decades about multi-speed variable geometry a la carte Europe the basic model is basically we all try and move along together because nobody likes being left behind or being in the second tier and as such there's a degree of accommodation that goes on that is quite uh, uh, full-on for member states if you want an example of that then think about uh, David Cameron's renegotiation back in 2015 early 2016 uh, with member states where they tried to make an accommodation for him that uh, allowed him to uh, be able to go back to uh, the British Republic to argue that you know their uh, concerns had been addressed and that therefore people should vote to stay in. Now that didn't work out but uh, if we try to imagine uh, a British government of any complexion going back to the EU now and trying to get a similar kind of package of uh, measures put together that uh, David Cameron got then that would be simply unimaginable precisely because the UK is no longer a member state all of which points to the need for a rather different kind of model of engagement one of the things we've seen since the UK left formally uh, and indeed before that has been a, a bit of a collapse in British presence in Brussels and in the EU bubble that the breadth and uh, depth of interactions between British politicians and civil servants and their EU counterparts both in the member states and in the institutions provided a constant dialogue so there was a high level of awareness of where everyone was and of trying to understand each other's situations to help make things move on without that more and more what we'll find is the UK discovering things that are happening in Europe at a point where they are relatively advanced and therefore relatively hard to shift and particularly once you get into the formal decision-making process of the EU then the UK will have no traction because it's not a contracting party it has very kind of distant uh, uh, connections in that sense so what the horizon situation tells us about is that the UK needs to think more carefully about how it manages its relationship whatever that relationship is with the EU is that the old kind of models of turning up at a summit and trying to uh, do the whole uh, late nights you know just you know work until everyone breaks and you know we sort it out in a grand deal simply isn't an option anymore the UK is a third country and will remain a third country uh, for the foreseeable future and that requires a rather different model of engagement from the UK that it's been doing up until now.
I think Horizon marks an early test of that, the ability to find a resolution, which I don't think is particularly difficult, and for that to uh, you know, stick, is going to be something that will be helpful in the coming uh, months and years as a guide of uh, how well uh, this new relationship can develop. I think we've got another number of areas where there are possibilities and possible lines of action, but uh, we will have to see how they go. So with that, and with the strimmer continuing to mow outside the shed, as I watch the spring colour blossom in the overgrown garden, I will leave you and I will talk to you next month where we will have more discussions about such things. Have a good day.